This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Innovate or die is a widespread mantra in the business community, but there's also a misconception that small startup companies have the edge over larger, more established companies when it comes to innovation. Our next guest, Gary Pisano, has spent three decades working with and researching both big companies and fast-growing ones. He says bigger established companies can move to the next level, but they have to go about it in a different way than a startup. Pisano is professor of business administration and Senior Associate Dean at Harvard Business School. His new book is Creative Construction, The DNA of Sustained Innovation. And a pleasure to have him uh, joining us uh, from uh, Boston right now. Gary, thank you very much for your time today. Dan, thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. You know, it's funny because the word innovation seems like it's it's kind of been in our vernacular for probably the last couple of decades. But you mentioned uh, in the book that realistically it's been around for a long, long time. And the fact that many of the biggest companies in the 20th century were innovators at one point or another. Yes, absolutely. I mean, innovation has been kind of a fundamental part of economic growth in the last you know couple of centuries but you know, you know I like to remind uh, people that uh, as humans we've been innovating for millennia I mean it's something we do as a species that uh, we do better than any other species presumably so um, I sometimes hear people say they're tired of hearing about innovation but I mean it's kind of fundamental to our existence and fundamental to solving the problems that we face if we don't innovate what else do we do do you think there are more companies now more larger companies that understand the concept of needing to be an innovator even as their growth has has expanded over uh, over over their time. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, large companies today across the board in a variety of industries are thinking about ways that they can invigorate their growth and they turn to innovation. Uh, but the reason I wrote the book is what I found in both from my research and my teaching and my consulting activities that a lot of larger companies in some sense struggled to, to get started. They didn't know really how to attack the problem or they would attack it by trying to be just like a startup, which doesn't work for a larger company. Uh, you talk about a variety of different companies, uh, both positively and, and negatively, in terms of their success or failures. And, and one of the companies you do bring up uh, is Blockbuster. And, and mm-hmm. that is uh, obviously, I think, one of the, the true examples of a company that was doing exceptionally well, but didn't adjust uh, or innovate to meet the needs of the consumers and, and obviously went by the boards. Yeah, absolutely. And there's many others like it. But I mean, Blockbuster, people forget that at one point in time, they absolutely dominated dominated the video uh, rental business. Um, You know, they put basically all the mom and pop shops out of business. They themselves were a a great disruptor of that industry, uh, creating a, a basically a chain and could leverage their scale. They were great at leveraging data. They, 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 were, they were quite successful. Uh, but it, it, what they didn't innovate was their, the business model changed, and Netflix introduced a new business model. It wasn't yep. so much about the technology. It was a new business model, and they, they couldn't adapt to that. And that's a common story that's played out time and again. Yeah. How do you, so how do you compare those two companies specifically with that level of innovation and being able to continue to, to build that success? Because obviously Netflix right now is, is one of the premier entities uh, in the video and streaming world right now. 
Yeah, absolutely. And Netflix is a great a, a kind of counterexample and actually goes against Netflix experience and what they did. They transitioned from the kind of traditional DVD and the red envelope to video on demand. They did this when they were the leader in the traditional business, and they were quite large. They were a multi-billion dollar company. They were, you know, seven to ten billion in revenue at the time they, 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 they started to make that transition. And, you know, every theory of innovation uh, was basically was saying, well, that's not going to happen. They themselves will get disrupted. They'll be too wet to their own business model. They're too large. They're too, you know, too entrenched, et cetera. And that's the kind of pattern that folks have come to expect. But uh, Netflix is a great example of, no, it doesn't have to be that way. Through the right kind of strategy and the right innovation processes and the right culture, a large company can make a, a transition and, and be a dominant player. It's not just about startups being able to do that. But are there? Uh, I would think that there are common pieces to this process that larger companies need to have. You mentioned in the in the subtitle of the book the DNA that uh, that companies really need to be able to build out this process over time. What do they need to have? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a few elements, um, and I'll go back to the term DNA because I use the term very specifically because it means something that both both it's entrenched. But I was also being a bit um, ironic in the use of DNA because uh, the the term DNA because the DNA of an organization it's a, again analogy we often use, but it differs fundamentally from the DNA of humans or or living species. By and large, our DNA as humans uh, or as any living species is somewhat immutable. Um, right. Despite new new advances in genetic modification, um, we, our DNA is what it is, um, and and we're kind of stuck with it. People have kind of always thought that once companies have a certain the the equivalent of their organizational DNA, which is embedded in kind of their systems and their processes, their culture, that's it. They're stuck. There's inertia. They'll never be able to change. And yet, the DNA of organizations is mutable. That's a fundamental difference. And there's a couple of elements that I that I draw attention to in the book. In fact, I don't think it's just one thing. And the reason companies often fail in their attempt to become innovative again or to keep their innovative capacity is, is kind of three factors, three things that have to happen. The one is strategy. So you actually yeah. need for a larger company with an existing business an explicit strategy around how you allocate resources to the new versus the old. The second is getting the right systems in place. It's very different kind of innovation and problem-solving processes that go on when you're trying to do something transformative versus routine innovation. And the third element of that DNA is their culture. There's got to be the right kind of culture. And in the book, I go into detail on each one of those elements. So let's start on strategy for a second, because we I think when most people think about uh, the strategy of a company or strategy surrounding innovation in this realm, they believe that for a company, there is probably patterns that have developed over time that help build that strategy out. But with innovation, I, I think there's a, an expectation of kind of going into the unknown for, for a degree. So where innovation is concerned, how do you, how do you really build out that strategy that, that a company will need? Yeah, so you have to be quite explicit about, and again, go back to the first uh, comment you made around the term, you know, innovation, it's sort of everywhere and people talk about it. And one of the problems that companies uh, run into is the term innovation, you know, it, it sounds good, it means something good, it, but it means kind of everything. And in so as a result, it means nothing. Right. <laughs> that is, it's, it's, so what do we mean by it? And, and, and so everybody in the organization has a different kind of view. And so one, I think the first steps for senior leaders is to start to define the types of innovation and their choices and that, that, that uh, can matter to their business to gain advantage uh, and to think about the different 
ways they're going to allocate resources to those and just being explicit about the difference between, say, doing routine innovation versus radical innovation versus disruptive innovation versus architectural innovation. Those are fundamentally different types of innovation and being clear about what you want to do and how you want to allocate your resources to those is critical. And it's a different answer for every company depending on their competitive circumstances and where they are in their technology cycles. So, for instance, if you're if you say let's take a, a mature company and a mature business like Goodyear, right. um, which is a you know, well-run company, but they're in a slow-growing business. So, for them to grow, they're going to need to do something. You know, continuing to mo- put most of their resources into the tire business, while they need to put resources into the tire business, obviously because it's core to them, they're going to be able. They're going to their growth is going to come from fundamentally new business models. But if you're Google and your core business, core advertising business is still growing at something like 30 percent a year and they're a small fraction of the total advertising market, it's, you know, you put a chunk of your money into that core business and that's fine. Now, it doesn't mean all or nothing. Google, as we know, also invests in those moonshots, which are outside that that kind of core uh, area, that outside their routine quadrant. So, again, it's it's an issue about the portfolio and and getting the right balance rather than, you know, all or nothing. And there's no kind of, you know, standard formula to say every company should do, you know, X percent in this category, X percent in that. Uh, it's it's a little more complicated than that. I, I would think that a company like Goodyear, it's, it's maybe even a little bit harder because when you think of like Google and Amazon, there are so many touch points or so they're not focused realistically on one area. They may have started in one area, but they have obviously been gotten so diverse over the course of the last couple of decades, whereas Goodyear, their core thing has been tires, you know, over what, 100 years or so. And I, I, I wonder where that innovation takes them. That's true. I mean, companies, so what the advantage and the reason you see companies like Amazon and Google and uh, you know, even Apple becoming these sort of mega companies is they have platforms and platforms lend themselves to exploiting lots of different options in a lot of different businesses. And that's what they do. And some companies are inherently more, you know, confined by, by what they've done, but still, or by their history, but still, if you're Goodyear, a company like a Goodyear in a mature business, you know, you need to think about how do you reinvigorate that? How do you find new business models? And Goodyear is a good example. I mean, they yeah. actually have auto servicing, right? So, yes, yeah. we're gonna, we, we don't just sell tires anymore. We'll service your car. We've got that connection to the, to the customer. So it's certainly possible to take businesses and reinvigorate them. Sometimes you do it through technology. Sometimes you do it through a new, uh, a new business model. Think about what's going on today in, in, say, shaving products, men's personal care. You know, there's only so sharp a razor blade can get. And so continued technological innovation to make your razor blade shave closer has diminishing returns. As I like to point out in the book, there's only so close you really yeah. want your shave to be. On the other hand, th- there's convenience. And so you think about companies like Dollar Shave Club or or Harry's, which have created, you know, essentially new ways to reach the customer through an online uh, model. So a lot of different choices for companies, even in so-called mature businesses, to reinvigorate their business through innovation. Let me let me uh, throw another company at you, which obviously is, is struggling mightily right now and is in the news quite a bit, is Sears. Uh, and, and Sears is a company that obviously when when those stores came out, it was the opportunity for the consumer to be able to find a variety of products in a variety of different areas. And over the course of time, and, and one of the things that's been discussed has been the strategy of the leadership at Sears and what was not done to try and 
innovate that company, that big retailer, so that it could continue to be successful. And now it's on the brink of of having to shut its doors. How do you how do you factor in Sears into the negative side of this unfortunate of not being able to innovate? So I guess the question you know I would ask is was it inevitable? If you're a retailer like Sears to basically disappear, my, my my understanding is they're just you know days away from shutting their doors, so so uh, uh, on death's doorstep, quite literally. Yeah. But is it inevitable? And no, I don't think it was inevitable. I think this is where leadership has to take the blame in terms of what were the strategies, how were they thinking about what the customer wanted. Was there a transition to doing something online that they could have done while preserving their core strengths? Were they sizing the company the right way? I mean, I'm always amazed at retailers today. I mean, every time I go to a store, I think of five more reasons why I never want to go to a physical store (laughs) because they don't understand strategy. So I I recall one time with my wife going out to buy – we had to buy some plates. We had just moved and we were having a dinner party and we realized in – two days, we needed to have 12 plates uh, to serve people. And so we went to a department store. It wasn't Sears, but it was another big department store. I I won't mention their name. Um, We found plates. We couldn't find anybody to help us. I literally could not find anybody to help us, you know, buy the thing. I just needed it rung up. I didn't need any help because they had cut back on their staffing so heavily that, you know, to save costs. So in the end, we ended up ordering the same set of plates from Amazon because they could deliver it the next day. So you could see how Amazon created value for me. That store was creating no value. It was holding right. literally you know, tens of millions of dollars in inventory. That's a case where a retailer doesn't understand what it is that brings somebody to a store and what do you have to do to enhance that experience. A retailer, a physical retailer, is never going to be as cost-efficient as an online provider. You're not going to compete with Amazon on cost. You have to compete in a different way. And I think that gets lost. And that's where, again, you go back to strategy and innovation strategy. What kind of innovations are going to create a different experience here for our customer so that they'll want to be in the store? And and for those things that they don't want to be in the store, that's going to go to online and get that balance right. Gary Pisano is the author of the book, uh, Creative Construction, the DNA of Sustained Innovation. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132, B-I-Z, Radio132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. All right, so you've we've talked about creating that strategy, but what about the design of the system? Yeah. So, uh, you know, strategy is great. And I think it's fundamental. It's a starting point. But then the way you go about actually, you know, finding those new ideas, those transformative ideas and developing them and testing them, it's fundamentally different from building on your core business. And I think that's the second way that companies fail in their attempt to uh, reinvigorate their innovation capacities. And so a, a big mistake is they use the same system for all types of innovation. And when you get into transformative innovation, I use the term transformative broadly. It includes a variety of either pure kind of disruptive business model innovations or pure technology, radical innovations or combinations, which I call architectural. But you're really in unknown territory. You're not building off what you know. So you need a lot more. You need it's a much less linear process. Right. Uh, you need to be experimenting a lot more. You need to be prototyping a lot more. You need ways to incubate 
ideas in a very different fashion. You have to search for ideas in a different place. A lot of times companies will say, you know, that we get ideas. I'll ask them where they get ideas for innovation from, and they'll say, we get them from everywhere. But then as you probe more deeply, you realize, no, actually, they get them from the same sources, the same customers, <laughs> the same suppliers. You know, and it's like those – we all just finished the holidays. I'm sure some of your listeners, some of the listeners have this experience um, that many of us have every year the holidays. It's the same relatives who come over every year, yeah. uh, and they have this – and, you know, what, what do you do? You have the same discussion every single year. Um, and that's the same is true for innovation. If you're talking to the same people all the time, you're going to get the same ideas that you had last year or the year before. You're not going to get anything new. So that's just one of the ways that companies have to change the way they go about in innovation when they want to do something transformative is ask yourself who you're not talking to. What yeah. suppliers are you not talking to? What regions are you not listening to to start to open up that funnel a little bit more? But isn't that also being more adaptable to, to a person's mindset or a leader's mindset in terms of where you want to go? Because I think there are times where companies are, are just so beholden to what has made them a success over 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, whatever that time frame is, that they are not as adaptable to understand that there are other paths to success in, in, in a corporation. Absolutely. A hundred percent. We all fall into that trap, right? So it's, but, and, and if you've been in an organization which has been successful doing something, um, a certain way for a long period of time, I think a certain cognitive dissonance can set in and say, well, yes, things are changing, but, and then you can sort of convince yourself that you don't have to change that much or you'll tweak, you'll see a little tweaks rather than thinking through it. Is there something fundamentally different? Right. Innovation at the end of the day, I know we have lots of new tools and, you know, big data analytics and, and technologies to help us do innovation. But at the end of the day, it's, it's people who innovate. It's people. Innovation is an intensely human activity. And so it does come back to leaders and people throughout the organization who can think a little differently, who can draw connections between areas, who can say, you know, here's something going on in another business, which is very relevant to ours. Go back to the Netflix example. Reed Hastings for Netflix always talked about how he got the idea for a subscription model by going to the gym one day. Yeah. And if you said, what does the gym business have to do with the video rental business? On the surface, nothing. But actually, there's a common you know, way to think about the business model. So this is using analogies and kind of arbitraging ideas across sectors. You need people in your organization who can do that. And again, sometimes companies who have been successful in a certain way have hired the same kind of people over and over again. They've hired from the same schools, the same disciplinary backgrounds. And so they just kind of replicate that kind of pattern of thinking that they've always had. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised they don't come up with anything new. So it take us into the culture side of this as well. And, and uh, there's obviously a big uh, uh, discussion these days about culture and uh, business culture and, and what companies want to have within their operations. But take us into the, the culture side from your argument. Yeah. So culture is an area that I, I find really fascinating and perhaps maybe the most understood, misunderstood when it comes to innovation. So a culture is like the software of the organization. If you could get the right strategy and the right systems, it's like having the right hardware. But if you don't have the right culture, you know, it's not going to work. But culture, I think, is an area where companies struggle because, first of all, changing culture in general is hard. But I think it's been particularly problematic with innovative cultures. And I think they're, they're fundamentally misunderstood. And what I mean by that is I think there's been a tendency to focus on a lot of the 
desired behaviors of innovation that are very palatable to people. So you'll, we'll hear the same things over and over again. You know, what does it take to be an innovative company? Well, you have to have a tolerance for failure. Right. Know, so let's celebrate failure. Uh, let's let's um, be have a big willingness to experiment. Great. Let's have a lot of uh, you know psychological safety so people can speak up and challenge. Terrific. Let's be collaborative. Fantastic. All that stuff is really terrific, and everybody seems to want to do that. And then the puzzle for me is if this is behaviors that lead to innovation and everybody seems to want to do it, why isn't it being done? Because you just, you know, you've just named for me a whole bunch of behaviors that are in some sense really desirable. I, I run seminars at companies and I'll ask, how many of you want to work in an organization like that? And everybody raises their hand. Right. And then I say, how many of you work in an organization like that? And nobody raises their hand. <laughs> and that's like, well, wait a minute. You just described a world for me in which ice cream is good for you and not everybody's eating ice cream. So what's going on? And what I found in my work is that there's another side uh, that's equally important. And it's I call it a darker side or a tougher side, uh, depending on when you were born. You might think of it rather than the ice cream side, the cod liver oil side, or maybe the more modern version is the kale <laughs> version, yeah. which is, okay, you need a, a tolerance for failure. Absolutely. But innovative companies set incredibly high standards. They have intolerance for incompetence. So we tolerate failure. We don't tolerate incompetence. And they draw that distinction. A willingness to experiment? Absolutely. But they're super disciplined. So when they do an experiment, the data speaks for itself, and that's it. They, you, the, day, the data is sacred. Psychological safety, everybody can speak up. Terrific. But also you need people in the organization who can tolerate the kind of candor that comes with it. And I use the term, it's brutally candid organizations. And I don't mean people are brutal in a personal sense. It's just these are tough organizations to, to, to work in. Right. Um, every day, you know, you're challenged. You're not – nobody lets anything slide. There's a lot of collaboration, but there's huge personal accountability. And you need accountability to make decisions. You need individual accountability to make decisions quickly, and that's key to innovation. So what I have found is very often companies are less – and people in the organizations are less comfortable with that other side of, of, the, of the innovation uh, culture uh, ledger, if you will. They, they love tolerance for failure. They love you know, willingness to experiment and psychological safety and collaboration. There's a lot less, um, you know, uh, taste for, well, we're going to actually hold people personally accountable for the decisions they make. But we're going to set really high standards, et cetera. And that's and it's tougher. Innovative cultures are tough. They're very tough. But if you have an understanding and you're actually learning from the failure, then then it's something that can be built upon within the structure of the company. Absolutely. And so I draw a distinction between learning. You know, people say, let's celebrate failure. And it's one of these buzzwords that drives me crazy. My view is, look, don't celebrate failure. Celebrate the learning that comes from the failure. If you have a failure that you didn't learn anything from, I, I really don't feel like celebrating that. <laughs> if, yeah. if you, But if we've learned something, if we tried something, um, you know, we took a thoughtful risk and we tried something and it didn't work and we learned – well, actually, that's something to build upon, and we, we could be better off at the end. So, again, this is a delicate balance, and the job of leadership is to get the balance right. We want to set high-performance standards, but we don't want to be you know, draconian on people. We, we want people to be speaking up and very candid, but we don't want them to be you know, personally mean to others or demeaning, or we want to create an environment that is you know, people's dignity is intact. But it's a balance, right, because we hold our ideas near and dear to us. So if I'm presenting my idea, you – attack my idea as graciously as you can, 
I, I tell you, that still hurts, right? It's still going to hurt. And and these are organizations where, you know, that that's a fine balance between, did you just attack me or my idea? And well, we yeah. hold our ideas pretty close, and sometimes it's hard to draw that distinction. Is there part of this that, that has adapted in, in recent years because uh, of the digital world that we live in and the millennial area that we're in right now? That's a great question. I, I mean, obviously, a lot... Um, there's a lot more things that go on in a company, including its innovation activities, which are digital. And I think digital technologies and capabilities allow us to do a lot more at scale. So when we think about the power of organizations like Amazon, it's because they can scale things dramatically. Digital platforms have, in some sense, almost in some cases, almost unlimited scalability. And so that gives the advantage to larger companies uh, and so, you know, Jeff Bezos has said in, in one of his letters to the shareholders, if used properly, our scale can be a great advantage to us. If used improperly, right. we, it could stifle us. So I do think digital, you know, plays a, plays a big role in that. And digital makes data a lot more available. But then we have to be – we have to use it. We have to look the data in the eye. We can't say oh, we like data. If, unless it doesn't tell us what we want to hear. <laughs> that's, right. yeah. that's 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 uh, not, not the way it works. Gary, thank you very much for your time today. Greatly appreciate it. It's a fantastic book, and all the best with it. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you. Gary Pisano from uh, Harvard. Uh, the book is Creative Construction, the DNA of Sustained Innovation. Uh, many thanks for him to joining us. And also, uh, the book is available in bookstores and online right now. want to make sure that we also thank uh, Harvard University's Public Affairs and Communications Department for use of their audio studio in doing this interview. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 